Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Chris. I'm a pastor and elder here at Resident. I'm glad you're with us. Um, today's going to be a little bit of a pivot. Uh, we um, have been walking through a series that um, has been really, uh, hopefully, addressing um, the various doubts, disillusionments, uh, disorientations that so many people have uh, with faith, with church, uh, so many of the conversations around things like deconstruction and others. Um, and, and we wanted to, to kind of walk through and at some point answer some of your questions as well. Um, we've had a form uh, available on our website uh, where you can submit questions um, to, that maybe we'll answer at some point. Uh, we have way more questions than we will answer, uh, considering we only have a couple weeks left of the series, uh, but um, we may roll out a podcast or something. Who knows? Everybody has a podcast nowadays, so um, we might add that uh, into the ways that we answer some questions that just don't require um, 30, 40 minutes, but require maybe 10 minutes, or maybe require more of a, a dialogue than uh, what feels like a monologue. And so, um, anyways... Today, uh, we, our initial um, topic was going to be sort of the, the, the role of women and within the life of the church, conversations around complementarianism, egalitarianism, all the different terms that get used. And we will still do that, but we're not going to do it today. Um, part of that message included a Q&A uh, back and forth um, with somebody who is now on an airplane uh, that was supposed to be back yesterday, um, but is uh, still on the way today. Um, and so our team from Nepal is not quite back yet. They got delayed an extra day. Uh, they'll land sometime around 3 o'clock today. Um, so we're going to do that message. It seems like that part was going to be uh, very important. Um, and it's like half the message time taken out. Uh, and so um, we're going to do that again next week. So this message is written in the last 24 hours. Uh, and so it's, it's going to be a little bit all over the place. Trey already gave me a whole chunk of things to take out of it. So um, we'll see how well I do that in real time. Um, but uh, a lot of what um, I want to cover today is stuff that, um, it's like the stuff that stews in my mind um, around almost like cultural anthropology, a little bit of how we got to where we're at, particularly in sort of the, the postmodern world that most of us swim in and most of us um, see things through, whether we want to or not. Um, but I want to open by reading this uh, passage out of Matthew, a pretty famous passage in Matthew 11. Jesus says this to others, to the crowds in front of him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Which is a tremendous invitation from Jesus to the people to come to him, to find rest to find an easier burden. I love how, um, not Andrew Peterson, uh, Eugene Peterson rephrases this in the message. He says this, he says, are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me, get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I love that phrase. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. And I'm sure so many of us are like, yes, please. I think for many of us, we hear that, and that's what we so desperately want. But our realities are often anxious, stressed, frustrated, 
feels like there's a lot of burdens on us all the time. So why is that disconnect there? When Jesus' invitation has come to me and this is the promise on the other side, why do so many of us not live that way? And I want to I talk today around particularly the idea of identity. And I know it's a catchphrase in some ways, but th- this idea of what is sort of the, the core to who I am, fundamentally who I am, and how do I define things like, what, what, is, what does it mean to be a good person? Do I live that out well? All those sort of questions that I think most of us operate with. And so... Um, this will be the starting point where I start trimming stuff out, and I will try my best to, to give a flyover instead. Uh, there's a, a pretty famous sociologist from the University of Pennsylvania um, called Philip Reif. Um, his stuff is like the worst to read. It's just academic and dense and hard. Um, so some of this comes from other people doing it for me and reading it and regurgitating it. Um, but Philip Reif was a bit of a, a sociologist that was also a futurist, kind of watching the trends in culture and able to identify them as well. Kind of watching the, the world move from a polytheistic world to a monotheistic world. And then even after that, it was sort of like post-monotheistic culture in some ways, a, a bit of a derivative culture that history has moved towards. And those, those periods help define in some ways also this idea of identity. And he breaks down history a bit into four major categories. And, and, and hear me, Philip Reif's not a, not a Christian. And some of you, I just want this disclaimer, some of you have walked through the series and you're like, this is not for me. Um, and some of you are like, this is the greatest thing we've ever done. And so um, it just depends on who you are and what you're wired for. And that's totally fine. Um, this series has felt way more academic, um, probably um, way less exegetical. So it's less taking sometimes the passages and unpacking them. Um, we'll go back to that when we get to Matthew in, in December. Um, but these are still important things. Like the systematic side of faith is just is also important in addition to the exegetical walking through text kind of questions of faith. And so um, if you have been like, please end the series soon, um, it will be ending soon. Um, and if you wish that we don't, uh, sorry, we will end it. Um, and not answer all your questions. But that's the best part because the questions continue. It's not like they ever end. Uh, and so, um, this will include a little more academics on the front end. We will use some scripture in this, but it's almost big picture ideas. Philip Reif uh, breaks down history uh, into four sort of uh, categories that during sort of um, uh, the um, Greco-Roman age that, that a lot of identity was tied into, the, the polis, the city, the political person, like what does it look like in my stratus of the world? That's my identity. That's how I have to identify myself as. Um, and then it moved towards a, um, sort of religious practice. Um, so uh, as monotheism took over the world um, of the Western world, and, and most of this will be couched in sort of a Western European sense, since that's a lot of the cultural influence of our country, um, that uh, the, you just go to a city in Europe and you can tell, like, old cities. And what's at the middle of most of those little towns in France and Germany? Is the church, and everything in the city revolves around the church. And so the church's practices, there was a lot of shared understanding of how the world worked, whether people believed in Christianity or not. Um, it was still the dominant cultural force for a long time. Uh, and then economic man came along, as Philip calls these things, economic man. Um, 
industrialization, everything else, so suddenly worth started getting tied to value, contribution. What do I bring to the table? Um, what can I produce? What money I have? Things like that. And then lastly, which is sort of the thesis of his book, is a therapeutic man. That, that um, It doesn't identify with um, the polis and the politics. It doesn't necessarily lead to identity. It identifies with religious practices and the religious community I participate in. It doesn't even identify with the value that companies and everything else tell me I have. The idea is that my identity suddenly became from what um, my inward personal quest for who I am, psychological happiness. And we even see this in history and like practices. So take dancing. If I say traditional dance or anything really before the 1960s in America, what tends to be your vision of what that looks like? Yeah, ballet, which is usually a company doing certain acts. Or if you travel to, I don't know, Hungary or something like that, you watch traditional dance. What is it? It's very communal. There's, there's multiple people that all learn sort of the same dances and do it as a, as a unit together. Now you think of America dancing in the past 30 years, what do we think of? It's usually not that, right? It's very individualistic. Like you go to a wedding, everybody's doing their own thing until the electric slide comes on or keep it shuffle. Everybody's doing their own thing, right? You just do your own thing. And, and we had flash mobs there for a minute that might have broken the mold. Um, my wife and I were joking the other day going like, remember flash mobs? And that was like a year of flash mobs everywhere. Um, but there was a shift. There was a cultural shift, particularly here in, in sort of the Western world, to have much more individualized understanding of how things work. Even if you ask people about their job, you ask, my, like my grandparents, um, if you were to ask that age group, all right, do you like your job? And most of them would be like, well, it helps me provide for my family. And it seems like an odd question, but this is how I, I, I contribute. And if you ask most people, um, particularly 45 and younger, do you like your job? It's like questions of like, does my job make me feel good? Does, does my job give me sort of self-satisfaction with life? It's a shift. And so there's, a, there's almost a, a, a grouping of two things, which is a traditional understanding of identity and I would argue a modern or individualistic identity. The traditional identities looked outwards. So as I said, they looked to the city, they looked to family, they looked to community, they looked to um, even religious practices, they looked at their parents or the guild they might work with, whatever it is, that that was so much of it, that the culture and community helps tell you what it means to live a good life. And that we would sacrifice our desires for the sake of the community, the community ideals. And if you come from a, like a, a culture that's not Western um, or not particularly white, um, you probably experienced some of this in those cultures, the, the sort of um, communal uh, c- community as top above individual altogether. And so um, the modern identity flips that completely over, the individualistic therapeutic identity. It's the inverse. And Reif makes it clear when talking about therapeutic that individual identity is about looking inward to find who I am. The modern people today discover what's going on in my heart, and that's who I really am. Sort of the eat, pray, love understanding of reality. Like, it's like the, the amount of college students who graduate and go, I need to travel the world to figure out who I am. That sort of understanding of, I just need to find myself in some ways. And then when I find it, 
Once I realize what I'm feeling on the inside, once I find that, now I can broadcast that to the world and everybody has to affirm it, which is the newest asterisk over the last 10 years. And this becomes why it's so hard to disagree about anything. Because with identity, this is no longer about disagreement on how the world works. This is an affront to somebody's identity themselves of who they are at their core. At least that's how they perceive it. And for many of us, I mean, I will say for myself, and I'm like, a, I'm like a geriatric millennial, but this is the water that we swim in. This hyper-individualistic, therapeutic understanding of the world. And hear me, it's also a position of privilege. Like, the, the polis got moved into to religious practice because as as sort of the polis broke down, people can suddenly start thinking of something more transcendental and they moved to the religious practices. But then they started industrialization. They started having money and value and people started moving towards that because they suddenly had this new thing that they could operate out of. And now that everybody's sort of safe and secure and fresh water and stuff like that, now we can stop looking everywhere else and we could just find our identity in our side ourselves. And so even that is a privilege in and of itself. There's problems with this whole world of interreligious identity. Um, the first is that it's incredibly fragile. It's what researchers are knowing, know, noticing time and time again that people are racked with anxiety and self-doubt. We are a culture that is the most individualistic we've ever been in history in terms of like finding yourself, and yet we are the highest, highest rates in history. Of, of anxiety, self-doubt, depression, loneliness, all of it. Because if I have to look inside myself and decide what makes me happy, and I'm the only one who gets to decide what that is, and I'm the only one who knows if I live up to those goals, that sounds like freedom, but is incredibly fragile. And the reason why is because, guess what? There's a few categories. My feelings and desires are always in shift, right? Who feels and desires the same thing every day? We just don't. We, we change. We shift. We have different things that we think about ourselves all the time. The next thing is that we can never truly validate ourselves individualistically. We are inherently social creatures, right? You read a good book or you find a funny meme, what do you do with it? You tell other people about it, right? Because you're like, hey, like, I find this funny. I bet that you'll find this funny. Like, Chris Avery and I share like 10 memes a day with each other that we just find hysterical. And so that's what we do because we just think each other finds things funny that, that we find, yeah, we share the same sense of humor. We seek validation from others no matter what. It's just how we operate. It's difficult to live this way for any length of time. And if you do live that way for any length of time, you would probably call, we'd probably call you a sociopath. Like at some point, if you live in such a sense where, hey, I'm, I just need to figure out who I am and just live that out. I don't really care what anybody else thinks about me. That's, I mean, that was our most recent president, right? Like, whatever your politics are on Trump, that, that's how he operated, is, I don't care what anybody says about me, I'm just going to do this. And, and at some point, that feels sociopathic. It feels like crazy at times. Lastly, it makes modern people a dream for marketers. Just an absolute dream. Because if you go back in time to advertisements, kind of pre, kind of postmodernism. Um, it just told you what the product did, right? This toothpaste does this, and it helps whiten your teeth. It does all these wonderful things, right? And you start dealing with sort of the, the postmodern therapeutic world. Now you don't sell a product based upon usefulness at all. It's on how it makes you feel altogether. 
Marketers know that we're fragile, anxious, um, struggling with self-identification people, and we can tie, our, we can tie a product's self-worth to you um, so that you would buy that product itself. It's just marketing 101 now. Also, uh, individual identity, I would say, is crushing. It's counterintuitive, but it's just crushing. If, if traditional identity is about fitting in, individualistic identity is about um, standing out. Um, I used this analogy before, but um, if you watch Ted Lasso, which is like one of the greatest shows of television, um, if you watch Ted Lasso, um, Apple TV, just go get it. Um, I'm going to give away sort of a spoiler for the first season, so if you haven't watched it, sorry, um, but it, it keeps getting better. Um, at the end of the season, uh, Jamie Tart was this really high on himself, but very good soccer player that was playing on this team coached by Ted Lasso, who's an American football coach who's trying to coach soccer in Europe. And um, Jamie ends up getting traded to another team, and they have to play each other for the championship. And um, Jamie has always like taken the shot, been the superstar, and in the final game, at like this crucial scene, passes the ball and lets someone else score and win the game. And it was like this breakthrough moment for his character, his breakthrough moment in the storyline. After the game, Ted Lasso, the coach, goes to talk to Jamie and congratulate him for winning the game. And uh, he sees Jamie Tark being just berated by his father. And his father says things like, I didn't come all this way to watch you pass the ball. And that's like this microcosm of, of this pressure that's put on you to be this individualistic, standout person. The idea that you can be whatever you want to be sounds like freedom, but it's just crushing. Because modern identity is about figuring out who you are to be this totally unique self in this world. But guess what? The first seven billion options are already taken. So good luck. It's crushing. And lastly, I would say it's an illusion that this individualistic world functions the way it does. That you're telling yourself that if you just look inside your heart, that that that's where you'll find yourself, but there's an allusion to it. There's, there's external factors all the time. Tim Keller uses this example. He says, all right, 70 years ago, if you were a woman in America, and there was a career path that you can choose that you would find really fulfilling, and there was also a, a great man that you could settle down with and have kids with and start an amazing family with, what would the culture 70 years ago have told you if you were a woman in those situations? Anybody? Yeah. 70 years ago, you'd be like, well, that's a good man. You should settle down with him. You should have kids and stuff like that. Right? Okay. Let's bring that to modern world. You're a 25-year-old woman. It's a great career path. You're starting up. Things are going amazing. You meet a perfectly amazing guy that you can imagine yourself starting a family with. What does the cultural pressure tell you to do in that situation? most of the time, is, is, is right now, it's a career. It's plenty of fish in the sea, another one will come along. Go self-actualize your career, and maybe you can find a husband that supports it, great. And so there, there's cultural pressures. As much as we think we are self-actualizing people who just make independent decisions, there's still always cultural pressures that are put on us without our permission that are just laid over us that shapes the way we behave. It's a lie to say, oh, I'm just doing this because it makes me feel good about myself. Because the definitions of what's making you feel good about yourself are overlaid upon you. It's a conversation we have about gender identity right now. 
And, and it's just layered. Like the idea that gender is a social construct requires a postmodern social construct to even say that gender is a social construct. It's like a black hole of never-ending deconstruction because there's always another layer to it. It's just complicated. Um, and it's just, there's so much nuance to it. Uh, Laman Senna, who's this Yale theologian, um, he was from Gambia, went to Yale, um, which is not exactly the bastion of conservatism to begin with, but um, he went to teach. He's a fascinating guy. Um, I think he died not too long ago. And it was one of his books, he talks about um, that what, one of the things that makes Africans African is the belief in sort of spirits and powers and the supernatural that exists in the world. And he says, when I came to Yale, they loved talking about diversity, and he says, they wanted my African dress, they wanted my African culture. But then they said, but spirits aren't real. He's like, but he's like, when I became a Christian, though, he's like, he said, I, I didn't become an, inspi- an inspiring European. I wasn't trying to be the European version of myself. He said, but Christianity allowed me to be a renewed Africa. That as I read the Bible through my African world and understanding, he's like, I saw spirits and powers, and angels, like, they're all in there. It, it affirmed some of the worldview that I functioned out of. Um, it's, Thomas Oden actually talks about how Africa shaped the Christian mind, and it's like a fascinating book, too. Anyway, but we think we are just doing what we're doing because we've looked inside ourselves, but that's just not the reality. And, and what, what Lamistana experienced is that you would go into a progressive environment with ideas of diversity and all these kind of things, but there's a cultural overlay to that all. And diversity is just defined by a postmodern Western European cultural understanding of what that actually is. Even though Lamasena is bringing a worldview with him. They wanted the artifacts of his culture, not the worldview of the culture. And it's all over. All of this has permeated the church. Just to, I, I summed up some of it, but I, I paused and slowed down for some of this. But it's all over the church. Like, there's conservative versions of this individualism, the sort of self-therapeutic actualization. Like, just take the election two years ago, right? There's a whole lot of people, despite whatever evidence is out there, who, who feel that the election was rigged, right? And because they felt that way, they felt like there had to be a recount. And, and so there was a emotional, this is how I feel about how this election went, this very internalized understanding of feeling and emotion, and therefore everybody now needs to conform to my feeling that the election was rigged to, to recount everything. And, and so you have, you have the, the liberal side of that, so the more deconstructing Christian kind of crowd of going on social media and making this public declaration that I, I am going after my own heart, I've found the inner truth, and here I go. I mean, Lee and I have some close friends going through that right now, where it's like, I have found my truth. And it's like, all right, let's break that down a little bit. It's wreaking havoc on the church. And, Christian, and, and so many who have Christian beliefs up here in their heads and maybe some doctrine, but the actual foundation that their life is built upon is, is Western European individualism, and it's eroding their own faith. And it started, uh, I don't even know, maybe in the 90s, I'm not sure, because at some point there was a switch where it wasn't follow Jesus because he is the truth, the, 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 the way, the truth, and the life, the, 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 the true thing. And suddenly Jesus started being sold as something, somebody to help you make feel good about yourself. And it's hard to hold on to doctrine 
while functionally basing your foundation on how Jesus makes you feel. And I'm not anti-emotions of feeling. I'm for those. I think they're amazing. I've been crying every sermon we've had. And so, but when you, when you do that, there's some real tension to it. When you're trying to do doctrine, but your foundation is, how is Jesus making me feel right now? But let's talk about gospel identity. Let's get to sort of the heart of this. Because it's neither modern nor traditional. I'm not saying, hey, we need to go back to a Christian identity that's just like the traditional identities in the past. There's a gospel identity that supersedes all of it. And what I mean by that, I mean, even the use of the term gospel, this sort of good news of what Jesus came to do and to bring, what he calls his people to be, what he calls his people now, like what we are, there's an identity. There's, there's something declared about us in that process. And we'll talk about a few of those as we go. But the good news of what Jesus accomplished through his life, death, and resurrection invites us into a new way of living that's not like traditional identities and it's not like the modernist identities and is better, so much richer. Um, and we'll talk through why that is. Um, there we go. You skipped to the right one. Good job. Uh, and so... Um, I would argue first, the gospel identity is distinct from traditional or individualistic identities in the fact that it is identity received and not achieved. It's not connected to a performance. So at some point, a traditional understanding of identity is, I need to perform for the larger culture uh, around me, the family, the community, whatever it may be. I gotta live up to their standards. So um, this is where a lot of honor-shame culture exists. So um, I gotta live up to the standards of my community, and if I do, they honor me, and if I don't, there's shame involved in that, and I gotta be reinstalled towards the communal norms of the community around me. Um, It's very much... um, sort of how that functions. The individualistic identity is I need to create an identity of who I, the kind of person I am just from my self-reflection, and now I need to live into that. There's a performance towards the persona that you have identified as. And so if you live up to your ideas on top of the world, you're, it's, it's, oh, I jumped, oh no, I didn't jump too far ahead. Um, you're looking down at everybody else, but if you're failing, you're crushed, but in the gospel, your identity itself is received and not achieved. Um, so take 2 Corinthians 5. Uh, it's a pretty famous verse. For our sake he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, in Jesus, we might find or become the righteousness of God. As one theologian says, it's, it's Paul bringing sin and God as close together in language without actually connecting the two fully. And what ultimately that verse and many other verses in the New Testament are saying is that ultimately what, what, what happened in, in, in the cross is that Jesus pays for all of our attempts of finding identity, all of our sin, all of our brokenness. And God treated Jesus as if he had sinned in order to simply give us now a new identity that Jesus didn't become sinful, but God treats him as he was. And we didn't act righteously, but God now treats us like we are. And that's an amazing reversal for God now to um, take Jesus and put him on the cross and to give us this new identity and righteousness that is not earned. It's by faith and faith alone that it's it that we receive it. And, and so we have this new um, identity as, as sons and daughters and, and, and being in Christ. And we'll, we'll unpack a few of those, but, but this new identity. And that means two things. One that our identity comes external from us. So it's not performance, because the performance has already happened 2,000 years ago. 
And that's ours to claim, that Jesus' accomplishment of all that God required of him. And second, it's complete. That our modern, The modern identity would say, you're only as good until your next screw-up. <laughs> but we now have a finished identity. It's done. It's not in progress. It's told fully to us now. Next is who validates your um, identity. A traditional identity would say that your family, your tribe, your community, that's where you get validation from. It's actually quite stable, um, but it is restrictive. Um, and if you do well, they honor you, as I said. But the modern identities, you validate yourself, you, which is inherently unstable altogether. And then the gospel is that God's the one who validates you, who gives you your dignity, worth, value. And the amazing thing is that in Christ, everything said about Christ is ours to claim. I, I love that. Because, like, let's take, let's take Matthew. Anybody know the two times that, like, we hear the audible voice of God the Father in Scripture? In, in Matthew, or in one of the Gospels? Two times. Baptism? Yeah. Uh, the, the mountain transfiguration. Yeah, I knew where you were going with that. Um, yeah, a mountain somewhere. Um, yeah, so his baptism and his mountain transfiguration. What does he say the same thing in both of those situations? This is my son, my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So the two times they actually hear from God the Father, like the, the surrounding people are listening and can hear it, God the Father claims, this is my kid and I love him. I just love him. And so when we come across things like, if, you're, if your identity is in Christ, you have a gospel-formed identity, it's not based upon what you achieve, but what you receive, then God also looks down to each and every one of you and says, man, you are my kid and I love you. How cool is that? Like, as a parent, like, watching kids' sports, guess what? I don't show up to my kids' games because of their tremendous athletic prowess. It's just like watching six-year-olds play soccer. It is a mess. They're running all over the field. It's just chaos. It just is. I don't watch it because, like, I'm going to watch, a, like, an expert game of soccer. But I love my kids. And I love watching them play. Even if they're falling down, even if they're running the wrong way, I still just love watching them play. And I think God does the same thing with us. It's like, yeah, you're my kid and I love you. I just love watching you play. Gospel identity assumes the reality of conversion and sanctification. Another way to say this really is that it provides the most stable platform for change imaginable. The most secure place for people to actually change, mature, become all that they are supposed to be. Colossians 3, if then you have been raised with Christ, so if then you're already in Christ, well then seek the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are of earth. Or Romans 12, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of the mind, that by testing you may discern that um, what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable, perfect, or even Ephesians 4, you are this, you are God's poema, he has saved you. Now, put off your old self and put on your new self. And we live in a world that struggles with talking about this. It's like songs that say, there's no better you than the you that you are. Yes, there is. <laughs> All of us would sit there and go, yeah, there's a better me than the me that I am right now. But the, the modern identity doesn't say that. It says, you, you, you're the, the most beautiful version of you right now than you will ever be. And in some ways, sure, I, I can get behind that. You're the imago Dei. You're the image of God. Absolutely. But everybody matures and changes and grows and 
in a traditional culture, you would, if you come to um, have emotions and desires that are contrary to that culture, they would just say, stuff your feelings down and don't be a good person. The modern identity says, who cares what everybody else says? Just follow your heart. Stuff down the people that disagree with you. Don't listen to them. Whatever makes you happy. But both of them have this pressure of standards laid before them. And the gospel can say, yeah, you can look inside yourself and you will find there's things where your desires and who you want to be and what you're living out is good. But then there's also desires that scare you and you wish you weren't true of you. Times where you just hate somebody else. Times you just get jealous. Times you just feel all sorts of different things. Because feelings and emotions, at the end of the day, are too unstable to base our identity on. And the safety of the gospel lets us look at our emotions and order them. That's, that's one of the, the amazing pieces of gospel identity. I think there's four more. Um, it offers a unique approach to humility and boldness. I'll unpack each of these. Uh, approach to our emotions and desires, which will just piggyback what I just said. Um, it's uniquely flexible to people and cultures, and it's unique to its approach to limits. So it's unique to approach to humility and boldness. Um, if you listen to Tim Keller, this is not a new idea at all. Um, if your identity is achieved, then you will be bold and arrogant when you're doing well, and you will be crushed when you're not doing well. But if identity is received from God, you could simultaneously be humble and bold at the same moment. I love that, um, I think Matt Chandler says that uh, in Christ, uh, no one walks with a limp and no one walks with a swagger. That the gospel reminds us that ultimately the, the, the only true good is ultimately what God produces in and through us. So it keeps us from becoming too confident in ourselves. But that God's arm is not too short to save and to work through all of us. And so there's no limp, there's a healing, there's a restoration that each of us has as a kingdom uh, son or daughter. It provides a unique approach to our emotions and desires, as I just said. Traditionalism um, would say that your individual emotions are a problem, you need to deal with them, Uh, you need to fold into the larger understanding of the world. Modern identity would say, um, no, that's crazy, don't fold into the crowd um, and, and all the things that the crowd wants to say about you, you just do you. And the gospel identity says you are free from your emotions. You're not a slave to them. They don't dictate to you. But at the same time, you can recognize emotions and desires can be sinful or good. It's a good thing. It's a healthy spot. That's why Augustine talks about the the disordered desires. I can recognize in myself emotions that are in line with what God desires for me and emotions that are contrary to that. And when they're contrary to the Bible or contrary to that, traditional culture would say, just ignore it. Don't do it. Gospel identity, or uh, modern identity would say, if they're contrary to the Bible, say, just toss out the Bible then. You just go after what you want to go after. But gospel identity would say it needs to be in its right place. That's why Paul will say things like, hey, the things I want to do, I, I don't do sometimes. And the things that I'm doing right now, I don't, I don't sometimes want to do. And what he's talking about is just that experience that all of us have of going like, yeah, I want to live this kind of life, but man, sometimes I really fail to live up to it. And then I see myself doing these things. I'm anxious and angry or whatever, short-tempered, something like that. And I don't want to be that, but man, they keep popping out of my life. And the gospel provides the safety to function, understanding all of those things as part of who we are. Um, it provides a unique flexibility for people and cultures. 
Traditional identity can sometimes be tribalistic. It's about you and your people, and, and often uh, how you uh, identify as that group can often uh, lead to um, looking down on those that don't quite fit in. Modern identity is trying to affirm everyone and everything all at once, everywhere, not knowing that you're often elevating a modern Western cultural value above others. So at times, this can be silly. So take like evangelicalism. Yes, American evangelicalism, which is not my favorite thing in the world right now, but it has a lot of Western trappings, Western European trappings, particularly white Western European trappings. And I understand that. And there's ways that we should critique that. Fine with that. But there's also, um, there's ways that that gets talked about. And we use terms like decolonizing the faith. And there's pieces, like I said, I get. There's some, there's some, Western white things that are attached to nationalism, all that kind of stuff to the faith that I, I don't think are gospel-centered. But then there's things that where I watch people sort of decolonize their faith, but they do it through a bunch of white French philosophical deconstructionists and overlay that on their faith. And all they've done is doubled down on white colonization to their faith. As I said, oh, I'm decolonizing my faith. It's, it's just the waters we swim in. Um, and also it has a unique approach to limits. I would say the church needs to hear this the most nowadays. Um, traditional identity gets lots of limits, actually, determined by its community. Modern identity is like limitless. Uh, limits are wrong. All appetites must be indulged, which are fine until you get to things like, okay, does alcohol fall in that category? Does power fall in that category? Can all appetites for power be indulged? Is that Okay. But gospel identity says, taken to any extreme, our best desires can become unhealthy. So let's embrace the fact that we are finite people with limits. God sometimes has healthy limits to what this world is about. I have limits based on what God's word says is true. I'm a single person in a single place. And our modernist technology is not helping us. I'll tell you that. When those those ladies who are delayed for a day were posting pictures of like being at the soccer stadium in Doha and like they don't even care about soccer. I'm like, I want to be there. I want to be in Doha right now, traveling the little town. That sounds amazing. Um, but I'm here. My body's here. My finiteness is here. And then we scroll through everybody's curated understanding of their own lives and go, oh man. And it creates anxiety, it creates discontentment in us, and then we all get frustrated. And we all live there as we watch everybody's sort of polished version of themselves. Right? Like, I don't want to be anti-technology all the time, but man, get off our phones. We'll talk about that in a second. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, so how is all this strengthened? How to, if, if I am to live out a gospel identity, how do I get there? What are, what are the practices? And what are the things that ultimately we need to be aware of that really do shape our identity across the board? Um, and I think there's four things. Uh, imagination, attention, community, and repetition. Those are the things that often shape us as a people. Um, so like, no one sits down with you when you're a kindergartner and goes, hey, do you want to be a traditional culture person? Do you want to be a modernist culture person? Or do you want to be a gospel culture? No one does that. Yet. But we are shaped by story and media and what the world is telling us all the time, our surrounding world all the time. And so binge watching, looking at your phones, all those things do things. Let's, take, let's just take Disney as an example. 
I'm not anti-Disney. We can have conversations around the politics of Disney. Um, but let's just look at the stories they tell. Little Mermaid. Is that a traditionalist culture or an individualist culture? Yeah. So I would argue an individualist culture storyline, right? She is part of her mermaid world, and she wants to be part of another world, as she sings about. And her dad wants her to be a certain way. She's all part of the, the, the world of the mermaids. And it's not until she can escape, even if she has to give up her voice or whatever, to go to the world of the land and walk on her legs on the streets and all the things she sings about. And she goes and experiences that. And then she finds out who she really is. And apparently she was not a mermaid. She should have been a human all along, right? It's an individualist telling of what the world is about. Or Moana. And if you are like people who've seen these movies, sorry, but Moana, individualist or traditionalist? Yeah, at the end of the day, I would argue, once again, this ends up being an individualist storyline told through a traditionalist lens of islanders, right? And she's supposed to be the queen of her people. She's supposed to grow into what the expectations are. And her whole, she sings a whole song about it. Of like, here are all the expectations. And then her creepy grandma, who just does her own thing, tells her, oh, just go away. Or the line where the sky meets the sea, just go there. Get away from your people and go find who you are. And that's what she does, right? And she eventually ends up back home, but it's not until she individually finds her true self. Or let's take this one, Encanto, right? Traditionalist or individualist? It's, it's a weird one. It's kind of mixed together. But at the end of the day, who is the, the, like, the surprise kind of bad guy in the story? It's like the grandma who wants the traditionalist understanding of the family, right? This is what we do. This is your duty. This is what, what defines whether you're honorable and are a good person. And then they all ultimately find all their individualistic ways. And it's all a celebration at the end. Of, oh, we can all be our individualist self at the end of the day, right? And it's, it's even told through traditionalist cultural norms of Hispanic families or Islander families. Like, it, that's just, and it's Disney reprogramming in some ways. It's telling through imagination and stories a way of the world that at some point is not actually gospel-centered and creates a whole generation of individualists like myself, right? Now, I'm a geriatric millennial, Right, but I was shaped by these stories. I was shaped by a Little Mermaid and, and those kind of stories, and that's what it is. Even the Lion King. Oh, my dad died. I was supposed to be king. I was supposed to fit into all these norms. Let me go out and eat some grub and hang out with a warthog and a meerkat and find my true self, and then I can go home. Right? It's just the stories we tell, and we're shaped by them without asking to be shaped by them. So, imagination, um, attention, community, repetition, and so. Imagination, attention, all those things to have scripture, to have prayer. Like scripture's full of stories that are told of what humanity is truly like and about. These themes all throughout scripture and prayer, this sort of sense of attention and looking to God to find out who we are and who he is. Even music, narratives capture our hearts and levels that are even beyond just cognitive, right? That's what music does. That's why singing matters. It's a way of working scripture into our hearts through the repetition of those songs and lyrics. And, and we sing them throughout the week. They become sort of cultural norms for us. Like, I'll just do it based upon the stereotype. I'm going to call it like some of the men in this room. Like, yes, I mean, there's, there's men and women who don't sing. But statistically, men really struggle to sing in church settings. And we're missing out on one of the most formative ways that God gives his people. Like, he has a whole large book in scripture for this. 
for us to just sing the truth of who God is and for those things to be repetition. And too often we're the, like the meme of Luke Skywalker staring at the camera all angrily and it says like Baptist worship or something like that. And so like for us to, to just get these words and these songs to shape us in ways that just the memorization or reading of scripture just doesn't. And community. Um, there's all sorts of things like, um, or research that we become more like the people we hang out with. And so um, if all your friends gain five pounds, guess what usually follows? You gain five pounds, right? If all your friends start working out, maybe what follows is that you start working out. It tends to be the sort of norm. That's what happens in communal practices, right? And so that's why we gather in worship. That's why we do life groups, for you to be around, to have these touch points and rhythms. But also, not just sort of community, but hospitality too. Because if you only hang out with Christians, guess what? It makes you super weird. It just does. It makes you self-referential and inward-focused communities grow toxic. They just do, over and over again. And so we want a culture of hospitality that also looks outwards, where we invite people in, we engage with people, and draw people inward. That's what Jesus calls us to do. And then repetition. Um, I think this is where the spiritual disciplines become part of practice. Sabbath. Um, reading God's word, praying, fasting, they all become these exercises, almost like riding a bike, that as we do them, they become so much more normative for us, a regular practice. Um, it even helps us to prepare for a moment of crisis. Um, one way I really like to think about the sort of spiritual disciplines, because the spiritual disciplines are a, a, a means. They are not the ends. Being an awesome Sabbather doesn't mean that you actually did Sabbath biblically. And so um, the best way I tend to think about them is that God's given us certain things that he's even instructed. So uh, things like um, community and uh, prayer and stuff like that, where the Holy Spirit will absolutely use those things. So wherever people are gathered, the Holy Spirit's there with them. When we pray, the Holy Spirit prays along us, those kind of things. But um, also all these practices, almost like um, think about it as um, if you really wanted to just get wet, like, like a rainstorm wet, guess what you have to do? You got to go outside. And if you stay inside, you're not going to go away from the rainstorm. And God's given us all these things to get us to go outside. Now, he may rain at certain points, and we don't get to control necessarily the spirit. We don't get to control how that rainstorm uh, comes and goes, but it gets us out there so that the rain can come. And so the spiritual disciplines provide us tools to get us to go outside and see what the Holy Spirit might do. And so we have those, those practices. Um, and so, yeah. Let me close with um, why did I even talk about this for today's lesson? Uh, first, it's because it's the things that are on my mind all the time, so it made an easy sermon to write in 24 hours. Um, but second, this is undergirds, I would even argue, some of the conversations and questions that you all have asked of like, why are things this way? And even some of the wording of the questions, I'm like, that, that feels very therapeutic, postmodern way of asking that question. And because we're so often like being lied to, we're being lied to by the technology we consume. We're being lied to by the stories that are told around us. And at some point, we have to step in and go, all right, God, what, what is your truth? Not what is my truth. God, what is your truth about me, about who I am? Because at the end of the day, that is by far as I just pointed out, by far the most freeing and fully human way to live. And so that's what Jesus invites us into. And so here's what I'll do before we do communion. I just want to read 
a couple identities that we have in Christ. That if you are in Christ, this is what you have. And so, um, I don't know if you want to close your eyes to receive this, to receive these words. I don't know if you want to maybe even, God, I do live in anxious frustrated. I don't know if I feel loved. I've, I've got all this baggage. I've got hurt. I've got all these things, but God, I want to receive what you really say about me. And so I'm going to read a few of these, and then we'll move into communion. You are a child of God. You have been justified. You've been set right. You have been redeemed. You've been invited back into the family. Your old self was crucified with Christ. You are no longer a slave to sin. You will not be condemned by God. You have been set free from the law of sin and death. You have been accepted by Christ. You have been called to be a saint. Your body is where the Holy Spirit dwells as a temple. You are a new creation in Christ. You are chosen, you are holy, and you are blameless before God himself. And you are dearly, dearly loved as sons and daughters and heirs of the promise. God, we are thankful for the words you have for us of who we truly are and that you invite us into a countercultural way of living where the traditional culture, the modernist culture, all of it can fall under a wonderful umbrella of a gospel identity of who we are, truly are, God, that can shape everything about our lives. So God, I do pray that these words carry over to tomorrow as people go to their jobs or go to school or stay home and take care of kids that are screaming and crying and all the different pieces where reality just sets in and it's so easy to get distracted. God, help us to set up repetitions, imagination, all the pieces to remind us who you are. Help us to set into community as a reminder of who we are in you. Help us with our disciplines to just live out and to set ourselves outside ready for the Holy Spirit to just pour out on us. We love you, God.